Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this show's next two weeks are arguably the most exciting <laughs> that, I've, that I've had in a while. Uh, I have simply, I've loved every guest that we've had this year, and uh, we've had some some awesome ones. We got to have David Ike finally on this podcast. Um, what I love about the next two guests is the nitty gritty detail that they get into around really important things. Um, today's guest is a guy named Nick Corbishley who is the author of the recent book, Scanned, Why Vaccine Passports and Digital IDs Will Mean the End of Privacy and Personal Freedom. I I mean, that says it all right there. That is the argument. That is the conversation. It is why this hasn't quietly gone away like most people think it has or want it to. Um, it is the lingering issue that literally everyone needs to pay attention to. It doesn't matter what side of the coin you fall on politically, what side of the coin you fall on medically. This will affect everyone. And it already is in many ways. It just depends on where you live in the world. It's another uh, one of the points that I bring up on the podcast is like, yeah, there's a lot of people living in Texas who don't think much of it because they live in Texas and there's no masks. There's no um, vax pass entry points, things like that. And there's people like I got friends in California who live in the South Bay and um, many of which are vaccinated who didn't, you know, don't bring out a vax card or anything like that. And they go to Ghirardelli Square in San Francisco and get shown the door because they don't have their vax pass. It will affect everyone. And to what degree um, this stranglehold takes place, I mean, we, that's really up to us into understanding what is the full game that's at stake here. Um, what does it actually mean in play? What does it mean in the future? And what does it mean for all of us? So, Nick is a fantastic guy. Um, I really look forward to anything this guy writes. I'm going to get him on for. He's the podcast guest today. He did a phenomenal job and we can for sure um, drop more on this as it unfolds because it is the thing. <laughs> it's the reason I keep talking about, um, you know, the issues around that. We can look back in hindsight and say like, was there nefarious play? Was there this? Was there that? Um the truth, you know, always comes out. And we've even seen the CDC admitting certain things over time, uh, you know, that early on were conspiracy. Early on were, you know, hearsay, right-wing nut job talk. So always an interesting conversation in looking in hindsight. But looking to the future is, I think, really where we need to keep our eyes focused. Because as I've stated, this is not going away. It is a pressing thing. And the more people just go quietly into the sunset, the more we fall into lockstep. And that is no future that I want to leave for my kids. All right. There's a number of ways you can support this podcast. Um, check out our sponsors. These guys make the show possible. We have some excellent, excellent, and very timely sponsors for today's episode. Also, send this out. You know, send this out. And one of the things that Nick does such a great job of doing is that he really bridges the gap. As I mentioned, it truly doesn't matter which side of the coin you're on when it comes to your medical decisions or when it comes to your political decisions. This does affect everyone. And he does just a beautiful job of, of illustrating that in his book. Um, and with that, you know, we'll jump right into the sponsors. This podcast is sponsored today by Aura. Thank you for sponsoring this podcast. Do you know what the fastest growing crime in America is? For years, this crime's rate has been surging and affecting millions of Americans. I'm talking about identity theft, and it happens to one in 20 Americans. Yet despite this, those who have had their identity stolen are often shocked when it happens. Imagine trying to log into your email account one day only to see the password had been changed hours ago. Then you start getting notifications of activity from your bank, credit cards, and crypto accounts. 
That's when the feelings of panic, fear, anxiety, paranoia, disbelief, shock, anger, frustration, and guilt set in. That's why I'm excited to partner with Aura, who is sponsoring this video. Aura is an identity theft protection, fraud monitoring, a VPN, password management, and antivirus software all combined into one easy-to-use app. Aura monitors the dark web for your emails, passwords, social security numbers, and sends alerts fast right to your phone and email. When it comes to fraud, every second matters. Connect your credit and bank accounts and get notified of any changes up to four times faster than Aura's competitors. Their VPN allows you to stay anonymous online by keeping your browsing history and personal information safe and encrypted. And the antivirus software will block malware and viruses before they infect your devices. Protect you and your family from America's fastest growing crime. Try Aura free for two weeks and see if any of you or your family's personal information has been compromised. It's a very important thing to check out. Start your free trial at https colon forward slash forward slash A-U-R-A dot com C-O-M slash Kyle K-Y-L-E. Protect yourself from America's fastest growing crime. Try 14 days for free at aura.com slash Kyle. Of course, we'll link to that in the show notes. And today's next sponsor is paleovalley.com. Paleovalley.com has been a longtime show sponsor. These guys are amazing. They have incredible organic supplements, the uh, food products of the highest, highest quality. I actually have one in my pack today. I'm back out on the farm doing uh, road work for the next two weeks. We got a, we got a gravel and a big old, a big old roller, which actually reminds me of Austin Powers every time I look at it, you know, just, just standing in cement going, no, for about 90 seconds. Uh, but, but of course I digress, but many of you have heard me talk about the Paleo Valley beef sticks. They are the ultimate keto snack, hundred percent grass fed and grass finished. And, um, you know, sourced from United States, small domestic farms right here. They use real organic spices to flavor their beef sticks versus conventional spices sprayed with pesticides or natural flavors, often made from genetically modified corn. They ferment their sticks, which creates naturally occurring probiotics, which are great for gut health. It's also great for eating, eating dehydrated snacks. I mention this every time I, I have a read for them because many of us think in a pinch, we start eating dried foods or packaged foods that that's no problem. And then all of a sudden you start getting gastrointestinal discomfort, maybe a little gassy. It's absorbing. You feel dehydrated. You know, not only is the thing salted, but it's dry. It's dehydrated. And the fact that their sticks are really wet and moist and the fact that they have probiotics makes it so much easier on the gut. Like they cannot be overstated. And it doesn't matter how many I eat. I've had four in a row. One time when I was on a road trip with Baron and the fam, and um, and I have them at the farm all the time because they're just a quick, easy to go, hundred percent clean snack that I can eat for protein and good sources of fat any time of the day that I want. It's got omega three fatty acids, vitamins, and fat soluble minerals, uh, glutathione, CLA, conjugated linoleic acid, which is the fat that burns fat. And very good, very good bioavailable protein. These guys refuse to cut corners in any of their products. I'm also holding on to one of their superfood bars, which is made with grass-fed bone broth protein. Now, that to me is phenomenal. Uh, they have the highest quality ingredients in here, many of which are organic and um, is sweetened with monk fruit and a little bit of natural dates and things like that. So it is just an incredible bar that's high in fat, moderate carbohydrates with high fiber and good protein. And, and it's just a great protein source, right? Anytime we get um, bone broth into our body, we are doing a lot, not just for our joints, connective tissue and skin and hair and nails and all that good stuff that the ladies like. I don't have hair on my head, so it doesn't really matter anymore. But um, we're also talking about gut health. You know, bone broth is essential for healing the lining of your gut. And if you've had leaky gut syndrome, 
IBS, Crohn's, any of these things, then fixing the intestinal integrity of the wall is super important. And um, bone broth is one of the key ingredients that does that. So I'm holding on to their lemon meringue bar. It is ridiculously good. I actually like to leave them in my pocket so it gets a little a little beat up and softened. And then I just chew on that. And it's a fantastic snack and an excellent pairing with the beef sticks. Check it all out. Paleovalley.com. Discount code Kyle for 15% off everything in their store. That is paleovalley.com, discount code Kyle. And of course, we'll link to that in the show notes. And we got a new one today, a very fantastic one, one that I've been a fan of for a very long time since I first heard Ben Greenfield talking about these guys. This show today is brought to you by earthrunners.com. KKP at checkout is going to give you 10% off everything. In congruence with ancestral wisdom, it's apparent that we need to incorporate more simple nature-based lifestyle practices and outsource less of our life to modern technology. An aspect of modern life that we don't often think about is how our shoes affect the ways in which we interact with the earth. Our ancestors were virtually always grounded. It's only since the advent of modern insulating souls that we have lost this connection to the earth. Our ancestors lived in constant connection with the earth by going barefoot or wearing leather-soled moccasins or sandals, which kept them grounded. Connecting your feet to the earth, a practice called earthing or grounding, allows the body to take in electrons, which helps to restore our natural electric state to enjoy the myriad of benefits felt while taking in the elements like our ancestors did. However, these days we lack the healing earth connection by wearing shoes with rubber soles that insulate us from the earth. Earth runner sandals feature a copper earthing plug and conductive laces to keep you grounded to the earth. Earth Runners is an ancestral-inspired sandal company which has created minimalist earthing sandals to support a more barefoot experience both physically and electrically. Earth Runners has taken the millennia-old footwear design known as the Hurache. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Maybe it's Hurake, uh, which is a simple sole with a wrapping lace, one of the oldest designs in history, and upgraded it with Vibram soles and earthing technology to give you the most minimalist, natural, and grounded shoe experience you've ever had. Restore your natural connection with the earth via earthing to enjoy the myriad of benefits felt while taking in the elements, same as our ancestors used to live. Earthrunners, minimalist soul for healthy, full range of foot movement, which improves everything upstream. Earthrunners aspires to restore our relationship with nature and to rediscover our ancestral roots via minimalist earthing sandals, rewild and reconnect with Earthrunners. You can find them at earthrunners.com and use the code KKP for 10% off. Absolutely love these guys. I've been wearing them out at the farm and everywhere, and I do feel a difference. Just because the fact, I mean, normally I'm barefoot. I'm barefoot everywhere when I'm at home. I'm barefoot in the backyard. I'm barefoot on walks. But there are places where people require. I went to the dentist the other day and they're like, um, you know, it'd be nice if you could put something on. And I was like, yeah, I can do that um, <laughs> for the normies out there. Uh, but Earth Runners is, is awesome because it allows me to stay connected no matter where I'm at. And it does protect, you know, against me getting beat up underneath. There are some some gnarly rocks and things out here on the farm that I'd much rather have some foot protection on, but I still don't want to lose that connection to the earth. And Earthrunners has done a fantastic job of bridging the best of both worlds. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Organifi.com slash KKP. Use the code KKP at checkout for 20% off everything in the store. These guys have become a mainstay in my family's dietary and supplement um, I, it's hard to say. It is a supplement, and yet it is nutrition. I mean, it is it is a food product that we supplement with, and it is uh, one of the easiest ways to round out our diets and make sure that we're getting all sorts of superfoods and extra nutrients into our body in one very tasty and conveniently packaged 
convenient to use product, uh, whether it's the Organifi greens juice or the Organifi red juice. And in the evenings, of course, the gold juice or the gold drink, all of these have become staples in our diet because of the fact that they taste great and they add so much. The uh, red juice is something that I've been on a big kick with lately. It's something I use pre-workout. It's got a number of different adaptogens and mushrooms in it that help potentiate your experience in working out. Cordyceps, Cineceps is going to give you more energy. It, it uh, helps the mitochondria function better. And it tastes great. It's also a vasodilator that helps you get a bigger pump in the gym. And uh, as Drew Canoli, the CEO and founder, uh, had mentioned before, it is something that can help you in the bedroom as well. So experiment with this stuff. It is fun for both guys and girls to get down with. And um, it's just an excellent, excellent product pre and intra workout. Green juice is something that, that I'll have with my family just any time throughout the day. It's an excellent snack. You know, in both the greens and the reds, I heard Drew talking about this with Paul Check. the reds is an excellent way to curb your appetite if you've got a sweet tooth. I think the greens just the same. They have a, a, a green apple greens right now that has a sweetness to it that is just phenomenal. It's on par with any. It's like, oh, it's my tasty green juice minus all the carbohydrates. There's only three grams of sugar per serving. And that's critical for anybody that's been into juicing and, and you know, making their own juice. It is a total pain in the ass to shop for all the ingredients, to chop them all up and grind them. And then to clean that damn thing out after, I mean, and, and it's a, you know, three to $500 investment for your juicer, depending on what you get. Um, I just don't have time for that anymore. And it's awesome that I can just grab a bottle or grab a, a single pack anywhere I'm at, throw that into a shaker and mix up something that's sweet and delicious and highly nutritious for me, where I'm going to get adaptogens and other incredible key nutrients that I'm just not getting in my diet. I'm not eating ashwagandha. I'm not eating uh, different things that, that, you know, moringa leaves. I'm not putting this stuff into my diet on a regular basis, but I am now not, not just for myself, but for my wife and for my kids. And it's made a wonderful impact on our health and vitality. You can check it all out at Organifi.com slash KKP. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash KKP and use code KKP at checkout. And without further ado, my brother, Nick Corbishley. Nick Corbishley, I am so excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, I was sitting in uh, Aubrey Marcus's office getting ready for work, and I, you know, he gets books sent to him all the time, and most of them are, you know, kind of spiritual or, uh, you know, just any 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 run of the mill diet book that kind of thing. And then I saw this book, Scanned: Why Vaccine Passports and Digital IDs Will Mean the End of Privacy and Personal Freedom, and I nearly jumped out of my seat. And I was like, I have been waiting for, for this book to be written. And I didn't even know someone was writing it. Um, I was super thrilled. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's great to be with you. It's true that there are not many books about this topic. It's like, given how important this topic is, it's, it's staggering just how, how I think it is almost on its own in the marketplace. It's literally no publisher, as far as I'm aware, really wants to go there. And I had the luxury of working with uh, Chelsea Green, which is a smallish publisher in uh, Vermont, the state of Vermont. And they have been willing to cover areas that most other publishers haven't. So, so yeah, it's, it's a fantastic. I was very, very, very fortunate to, to get contacted by them after writing certain articles about this topic. Um, and it's something, it's an area that journalists don't really want to go near. It's kind of like, I think a lot of people are just scared of this territory. There's so much the, um, pressure uh, from so many different sides. 
So, so I'm glad you, I'm glad you were able to find it. It's definitely got kind of like a, uh, an eye catching, um, an eye catching cover. Yeah. And, and you, it does shout out at you from the bookshelf. So, so I'm glad you found that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I'm thrilled. And speaking of Chelsea Green, that actually pumped me up too. We're, we're I'm buddies with, um, Charles Eisenstein and we mm. had him on the podcast recently and, you know, loved all of his books from The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible to Sacred Economics and The Ascent of Humanity and Climate A New Story. And um, just from his, he is a great blog. You know, he wrote a um, fantastic blog that went viral called The Coronation. And uh-huh. um, he he had written a couple of things that, that his publisher didn't like. So they publicly dropped him. And I know that that was like a you know, that was, that was a pretty hard moment for him to, to feel just not <laughs> supported, but I mean, it, it was expected in, in some ways, but he got picked up by Chelsea Green for his next book. So I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. I know he's going to be able to say whatever he, he feels like saying and, and um, bring the, the truth forth, you know, and that's important that there are publishers out there that are willing to do that. Absolutely. And they are covering so many important areas, whether it's to do with um, GMOs, whether it's to do with the food chain, whether it's to do with um, the vaccine passports, as in my book. Um, They're also publishing a book um, about the, I'm trying to remember the name of it, it's the the one about mass formation by the Uh, the Belgian uh, professor, Desmet, exactly. Um, So, I mean, like they, they are, they've got the courage. I mean, I think that it's, it goes beyond money. I mean, this is a a serious vocation. They, they want to be covering the big issues of our day. And unfortunately, most, most publishers don't want to go there. Um, And I'd say that that goes with most, most media organizations. So something, something, Something it's, we've uh, talked about. Sorry, go ahead. It's a huge topic. And I mean, like my, my book is only 160 pages long. I wish we could have done more. I wish we could have written longer. But I mean, like we had such a tight deadline because we knew that time was absolutely of the essence. We needed to get it out there as quickly as possible because, because yeah, the window of opportunity to stop this is closing fast. This, it, it truly is a now or never situation, but you know, I do have an arc generally to this. <laughs> we can just spend 60 to 90 minutes just diving right into the theme because it's, it's pretty juicy. But briefly tell us, you know, where did you grow up? What was life like? Uh, what did you study at university and, and what really brought you to, to this space? I mean, I, I got brought into this space. Um, I, I don't know what you'd call it, just of, of seeing the world as it actually is and the, the bitter truth of that because of a background in health and wellness. And I had seen for years, you know, really for decades, um, the, the, the fallacy of protection from our government around food systems, you know, and so mm-hmm. you, you brought up GMOs and um, basically a pay to play market with the FDA, a pay to play market with the USDA, a pay to play market with, with pretty much every, you know, major governing body that was supposed to look out for us and make sure that we're healthy. And, you know, that's not universally the case. We see Differences in the Nordic countries around food, like Sweden, Norway, and uh, Finland, where you know you can't you can't have artificial sweeteners or colors in children's food. It's just not allowed. I mean, that's it. so so. Kraft Mac and Cheese had to change their recipe in order to sell in those countries. I mean, it's just little things like that that stuck out to me over time, where it just made it easier to see kind of how this this is translated, you know, from 
big pharma and, and big medicine into the pay-to-play market that we're seeing right now. And then of course, big tech, but um, talk a little bit about that. Like what, what, what was your arc to bring you to this, to this space that we're in right now? Okay. Um, so I'm British born and bred and grew up in an area of England called the West Midlands, uh, which is uh, about 40 miles south of um, Birmingham. So this is where like the Peaky Blinders, if mm. I suppose maybe some of your listeners will be aware of that series. I mean, that that's, it's, it was the home of the Industrial Revolution. It's not the most beautiful city on planet Earth. It's an interesting place, but I mean, I spent my youth, uh, my, inf- my, my childhood and youth growing up there. And then when I, when I was 18, I went to university in Sheffield. I studied uh, history. I've always been fascinated by history. History has always been like, for me, the subject. I think from, from a very early age, I wanted to study history. And I wanted to understand kind of like how we got to a certain extent, how, how we got to where we are. Um, I think it's one of the things that arguably our societies lack the most. It's understanding of how we got here. Um, and I, after doing that, I stuck around in the UK for a couple of years, paid off most of my debts and decided to come to Barcelona to, to see if I could make it living in another country and I already spoke French. I wanted to learn Spanish and, and I've been here pretty much ever since. Um, I'm married to a Mexican, uh, a wonderful Mexican woman. And I've been working as a journalist for about 10 years, maybe you'd say 12, 13 years, but my first two or three years were working as a ghostwriter for a, a business journal here in Spain. And I suppose if you wanted to look for that kind of like catalyst moment, why did I branch off into what I've kind of been doing the last 10 years. And the truth is, is that um, after the global financial crisis, which which really hit Spain badly, um, we had one of the worst uh, housing bubble bursts in Europe. And some would argue that the economy never properly recovered after that. I mean, I think that... Uh, having seen like the way that um, the media was covering that here in Spain and also international media, I felt that it wasn't doing justice to what had actually happened. There wasn't enough talk about the kind of, um, you might argue, the reckless irresponsibility, if not criminal irresponsibility, of many of the banks involved. And and I started a blog when I in 2012. And I've been, I've been writing about financial economic events since then. Um, first of all, I was, I started writing for Wall Street, which is a very, very good financial blog, uh, based in San Francisco. I recommend anybody who wants to understand finance to get kind of into the nitty gritty of finance. Wall Street is a brilliant place. Um, wallstreet.com, that is. And in the last couple of years, I've started writing for Naked Capitalism, which is, a bit more political. It's it covers geopolitics, finance, economics, um, and I've been writing mainly about what's happening in Europe and what's happening in Latin America. Um, the the I suppose that 
I began writing about some more dangerous topics in the pandemic when I discovered the story about ivermectin. Um, I started writing about that in, in, I think it was February last year, um, because Mexico was one of the countries that was first to kind of like embrace it as at, at a national level. And I, because of my connections with Mexico, I was able to write about that quite intensively. And in a month later, I started writing about the vaccine passports. I was seeing what was happening in um, Israel, which was the first kind of advanced economy to go there and to to launch what I thought were exceptionally discriminatory, um, segregational uh, systems. And it was ironic to me that it was happening in a country like Israel, um, given their past. And a little bit later, the the European Union went down the same route. They, they, they launched their own vaccine passport for the 27 member countries. And it was with the same name, Green Pass. I mean, like the Green Pass, it's a curious name to be putting to a vaccine certificate. And it does suggest that maybe this will be used in the future with regard to energy consumption. We don't know that. Um, but I mean, all of this um, set off a lot of alarm bells in my mind. I, I realized that we had been told almost from the very beginning of this pandemic that, um, that the vaccines were going to be the way out of this and the vaccine passports were going to be also an integral part of that. And I think that uh, just being told that from February, March 2020, in the, fir- in the earliest weeks, and we were being told, look, we're not going back to the normal world. We're not, forget about the world of before. And it was so strange to be hearing this from whether it was politicians or whether it was kind of like, business leaders or um, technocrats, we were being told, look, the world of before is gone. And it was like, there was no, there was no consultation on this. It was like, there was just a decision from up above. The world has changed forever. Amen. Um, And that really did startle me. So, so, I mean, I started writing articles about this topic and then Chelsea Green contacted me and and July last year, 2021, and they they said, you know, we're we're interested in um, in expanding these articles into something into into a small book because we think it's such an important topic, and and that's how it began. Ironically, three days later, I came down with COVID, and I spent the next three <laughs> three weeks not feeling very well. Um, but, but that's more or less how I got here. The book was written in about four, four and a half months, which is an incredibly short space of time to write a book. I think as important as this, but, but we, like I said, the time pressures were huge. Yeah. Four, four and a half months is absolutely flying in, in, uh, authoring. I mean, I remember helping, uh, Aubrey Marcus quite a bit with on the day on your, on your life. Uh, his book, a uh, how-to guide of mastering, a, you know, a twenty-four hour cycle, and I had mm-hmm. lots of tidbits and things on optimization. But it was it was incredible how how long it took, and then you know, s- submitting and then getting things changed around, bringing it back, having to change it. It's just you know, it, I think it's it's um, 
it's such a daunting process. It's one of the reasons why I, like Jamie Wheel, will wait until I'm an empty nester to write, you know, with having <laughs> two kids. I'm like, I don't know that I can take two years out of their lives uh, to do that. But four and a half months is nice, absolutely man. flying speed. Let's, let's, and, and let's jump right in. You, oh, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to add, and also if you think, I mean, I write, I, I mentioned in the first paragraph, sorry, in the, in the first chapter, I say, look, by the time you read this book, lots of the things in this book will have changed. And I wrote that because by the time I'd finished writing the book after three and a half months, so much of what I'd written had changed and I had to change it. Um, and I mean, like when I started writing the book, we were in the kind of tail end of the Delta, uh, wave. And by the time I was finishing it, Omicron had come along and changed everything. And I mean, like, I'm glad I wrote that one disclaimer paragraph because the truth is, is that two months after finishing the book, we're in a war with Ukraine. We've got total economic war against Russia. The world, we're also being told now that COVID is no longer a thing. I mean, the world has changed completely. So it's, it was, um, that, that is kind of like, I think the hardest part of writing a book was that things were just changing so fast um, that it was hard to keep up. Yeah, it's it's uh, and you you do speak to these changes and and really well and actually, it supports the argument against passports really well. There now there's a number of arguments against the vaccine passports which we'll dive into, but one of one of the main ones is efficacy and and you do a brilliant job. You know I've had people on the show that are fully vaccinated and and disagree with me on a lot of these things and they have a different piece to offer on um you know not that topic per se but just they have something of substance that I want to give to the listeners whether it be a meditation mm-hmm. practice or something else and uh they're you know they're a friend and they're still worth having on and we could let <laughs> agree to disagree um but one of the things that I want to praise you on is that you you beautifully write you know this is for for both the vaccinated and the unvaccinated alike you know that that the that argument can be tabled, but this idea that we have around vaccine passports is something that should be on the forefront of everyone's mind. You know, and in the West, we, you know, over here, I shouldn't say in the West, because Canada is a hell of a lot different than it is here in the US, and certainly different yeah. than how it is for me in Texas and other friends in Florida than California and New York. Um, but whether you're in California, New York, or whether you're in Texas and Florida, a lot of people you know, it's just human nature to kind of get back into the swing of things, to start focusing on what you can change and and getting back to work and getting back to focusing on finance and relationships and different things like that. And, And it almost feels like there's a settled down amount of conversation and likely too, due to what we see on the news around Ukraine and Russia, there's a new topic of conversation. And it feels almost as if people think that's behind them, but it is not behind us. It is, it is full, full go in, in San Francisco, LA, New York city. Uh, so it is stateside, even though it's not been, uh, forced in our faces in the same way that it has in Canada and Australia and many other countries. Uh, it is very much alive and well. And I want to really break that down or first praise you for the fact that, that the way you authored this does speak to us all. Um, but, but why is this passport different than regular passports and why is the idea or the idea of digital idea IDs such an important thing that we should all be wrapping our heads around right now. Okay, well, thanks for the praise. I do appreciate that. Um, I mean, I think the 
I mean, the reason why I, I say in the book that this is for the vaccinated and unvaccinated, because ultimately the vaccine passport is is really not much more than a digital identity. It's um, it's it serves zero purpose in terms of controlling the spread of this virus, um, because we've seen that many of the countries in Europe, for example, with the highest level or highest um, incidence of vaccine passports per person, so I mean, or or, or as 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 a percentage of the population. Um, those countries saw the biggest, some of the biggest waves during the Omicron um, phase, and they even even governments themselves have come out and said, "Look, yeah, these don't work." Um, in Canada, some of the public health officials there said, "Look, these don't work." Doug Ford, um, the premier of Ontario, eventually said, "You know, it doesn't matter if you've got if you've had one vaccine, two vaccines, or ten vaccines." you can still catch and spread this virus. And that is absolutely true. In fact, in, in the UK, um, the NHS, the National Health Service there, some of the data that's coming out suggested you, you've got more likelihood of catching this virus than if you're unvaccinated. The, vaccinate, the infection rates are higher among the vaccinated than the unvaccinated. So, so that would suggest that the vaccine is, is kind of doing the opposite of what a vaccine should do. And, and I mean, like we, we've heard many, many public health officials more or less admitting that in the last few months. Um, in France, the, um, one of the chief medical advisors to the Macron government said that this is a, he, I think he used the word peculiar. It's a peculiar vaccine because it doesn't, it works more like a medicine than a vaccine, meaning it reduces your risk of severe symptoms. But at the same time, it doesn't do anything for for protecting you from from catching it. Um, now, if if that is the case, and if you've got the public health officials saying that, then essentially there's no way of enforcing this on people, because otherwise, you know, we are essentially saying we can from now on we can force people to take medicines, which is an insane idea. Because it's a personal decision whether you take this vaccine or not is by now a personal decision. If you want to protect yourself from those more serious symptoms, what you think is, you know, and you think that the vaccine allows you that, offers you that, then, then by all means go ahead. But at the same time, we are vaccinating children as young as five in many places. And we are beginning to see that, you know, there, this, the potential side effects of these vaccines are much worse than we were previously warned. Thanks to a very brave judge, I think, who was from Texas, who, who basically said that um, the FDA had to publish um, all its trial data for the vaccine trials um, in eight months as opposed to 75 years. Um, I think that that is the first point I would make. So, so it's very important that people realize that, that the actual public health argument for vaccine passports has gone as far as, at least as far as I'm concerned, as far as you know, everybody with the thinking brain cells sh should be concerned. Um, this is um, clear as day and even the public health, authorities, many public health authorities are admitting as much. Um, what worries me is the fact that the World Health Organization is talking about um, recommending vaccine passports for the first time 
since the pandemic began. Um, and this is really important. So the World Health Organization represents 194 countries that are members of the World Health Organization. So it is, it is an authoritative institution. It doesn't have the power to enforce this yet. So it can only, at the moment, it can still only make recommendations. Um, but that could also change. So at the moment, again, unbeknown to almost everybody, I would argue, on planet Earth, um, the World Health Organization is building a global pandemic treaty. And this is getting kind of like input from all the 194 signatory states. And if this pandemic treaty is signed, which is looking pretty likely, and it's going to probably happen in the next year or so, then that means the World Health Organization will have teeth with which to enforce its recommendations. So it means that it will be able to sanction countries, possibly, um, if they say, we don't want to put a vaccine passport in place. So, I mean, it's really important that people realize that while we are being told that the vaccine passports are kind of like, you know, they are shifting to the background, they are no longer important. Uh, what is actually taking place is that uh, the World Health Organization is going to be making it a universal part of our lives. So if you want to travel across a border in the future, you will need a vaccine passport. Uh, which means that you will need to be up to date on your COVID vaccines and potentially any other vaccines that the World Health Organization deems necessary. Um, so that is on the one hand, and it also means that it will be universal. So countries like Mexico that have not gone down the route of requiring vaccine passports and have had an open border policy since day one of the pandemic will be forced to change that. Otherwise, they will face sanctions from World Health Organization. If these two things come to pass, so if the if the pandemic treaty is signed, then then yeah, everything will be will change with that. And what disturbs me is that all this is happening not behind closed doors as such. It's happening kind of in plain sight. It's being reported on Reuters, but it's not going to be on the front page of the New York Times. And it's not going to be on the front page of um, the Washington Post. And it's not going to be on CNBC or MSNBC or any of these other um, broadcasters. So, so people are blissfully unaware that this is happening. So, I mean, I think that that is why this whole idea that the vaccine passport is going away is very dangerous. It is, it is un unquestionably uh one of the things that takes up a significant amount of bandwidth in the back of my head, wrapping my head around that, having two kids and really just wondering what the world is going to be like, um, you know, when they're my age, when they're bringing kids into the world. And, you know, as you, as you plainly stated it, it we're truly, <laughs> if we don't fight now, there is no fight to be had down the road. I mean, that's really what this boils down to. I think uh, Catherine Austin Fitz said a, a worldwide open air prison system is what this ends up being through the surveillance state. And, uh, you know, that that's a tough pill to swallow. It can be a lot. The first time I heard it, I was like, what the fuck's she talking about? That's super dark. There's no way. Um, but when you can begin to connect the pieces and the dots, you can see that that ultimately is the driving force, is centralized control, um, 
you could argue we already have, you know, the, the new world order, the great reset, the, the elements of a one world government in place through unelected officials and, um, th- you know, through the inner workings and the tendrils of, of Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. And I, I definitely want to dive into that. But let's paint a picture, paint a picture for me of, you know, really what this means. We, you know, things like segregation get talked about. Um, I got a good friend who I don't know if he wants me to name him or not, but he's back from where I grew up in the Silicon Valley. And he got vaccinated for work and he just didn't have his his digital ID passport with him. And so he was with his his wife in San Francisco and they wouldn't let him into Ghirardelli chocolate. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, and like, and, and for somebody who, you know, reluctantly took the, the jab, he was pretty pissed off to actually feel that because in his, you know, further South, uh, in the Bay area, they haven't implemented what they're doing in San Francisco, but he got a taste of what that actually feels like. No, you can't enter without your ID. You can't enter yeah. without your certification that says you're, you're completely up to date on everything we require you to be. And it might seem like, you know, first world problems, big deal. This guy can't get a fucking chocolate for his wife, but it, it, it is much, much worse than that. When you consider, uh, the ability to prevent kids from going to school and getting an education, the ability to, uh, fire somebody, the ability in Canada to, to freeze someone's bank accounts. I mean, that, that, that's just, a I mean, that flows right into authoritarianism and it has nothing to do with the green pass. It's just the outright, this is what we're going to do. And so in first world nations like Canada and, and Australia and different places like that, we're seeing less of a totalitarian tiptoe and more of a, a big leap. We're taking broader steps quickly. And uh, these are the things that are at the forefront of my mind right now, especially having children, but really a breakdown for us. What are some of the main differences on, on, you know, what we can expect with this stuff in place? Yeah, I mean, I think that number one is absolutely discrimination. So, so you know, you are setting up a system um, of intentional discrimination and segregation. And that, like you said, it can be as small as, you know, going into a sweet store or whatever and buying some sweets for your kid or um, being able to go to the cinema and these I remember in the UK when they were trying to launch the vaccine passport, they were focusing it, the same here in Spain, on kind of like night clubs. So it was like, it, that was the f- beginning of it. So it's like, if you, you know, revelers, if revelers want to revel, then you've got to be willing to get a vaccine passport to do so. And and they do that very, it's very, very clever how they do that because they just, they, they set the precedent and they set precedent saying, you know, not everybody needs to go out to a nightclub. And the truth is most people over the age of 40 don't go out to nightclubs. Um, so it's something that is for a small group of the population and people kind of accept it on that, in that particular area. And then little by little, it begins encroaching. And that is what you see. It's just this gradual encroachment and to, and to the point where, for example, in Austria and Germany, we have actually seen lockdowns of the unvaccinated. So people cannot leave their homes because they've not, they're not up to date with their vaccines. Now that is a dark, dark world. I mean, if somebody was to say to us three years ago, you know, in three years time, we are going to shut people inside their homes because they've not taken all three of one vaccine. I mean, like you'd think no way. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's like a movie. It's like a dark sci-fi movie. 
Well, that's the world we're living in. And even worse than that, it's on the basis of vaccines that have been shown not to stop the spread of the virus. I mean, that's the really insane part. Not only does it completely contravene the basic concept of a free democratic society, but it's completely ineffective. Um, so, so I'd say that, yeah, segregation starts small, grows and up to the point where it's absolutely huge. And some examples in, in, in Europe, other examples would include Italy. Italy's had one of the worst kind of like, um, one of the most draconian applications of the vaccine passport. Um, they have stopped, they've prevented people from working above the age of 50, I think it is. Um, they're fining people above the age of 50. So not only do they take away your opportunity to work, they start fining you as well. In Greece, they've been fining people, I think, over the age of 60 for not being up to date on their vaccine. And Greece is a country whose economy has been absolutely eviscerated over the last 15 years. So to be applying this um, on basically people more or less of pension age, um, I think it was 100 euros a month, but that is absolutely brutal. And also at a time of, of surging inflation. So it's, um, I mean, like Italy as well, you're not allowed to get on a bus and go across town. So I mean, like that, that for me was a really powerful idea because I mean, like in, in the United States, one of the most important moments when it came to segregation was the moment when um, uh, Rosa Parks got on the bus and she said, you know, uh, she, she sat down in the wrong, wrong part of the bus. And that was a very important um, um, what should we say, a very important gesture, a very important act that snowballed in an enormous way. Um, in Italy, you can't get on any bus if you are unvaccinated. Even if you've got 10 masks on, you can't get on a bus. Unless, of course, you know, you're able to, I don't know, um, to negotiate something with a bus driver. And, and that's one thing that happens in each country is differs um, not just in terms of the actual laws, the content of the laws that they are putting in place, but also in the way they are enforced. So, so if you were in Germany, probably the enforcement was a lot stricter than, for example, if you're in Spain, which is a more Latin culture, people are more likely to look the other way. So, I mean, it, it does depend on, you know, where these, um, these laws are put in place and how they are enforced. But, but I do think that the, the fact that we are talking about a system that will totally and utterly drive a wedge through societies, societies that are already incredibly polarized, is exceptionally dangerous. And there's really no, there's no argument for them. Um, but if there was an argument for them, if there was a public health argument for them, that argument has been and gone because of the fact that we know that the vaccines do not prevent this virus from spreading. Um, so, so I would say that's number one, um, discrimination and segregation. What else do these do? I mean, they totally change, they, they radically transform the way we relate to power and the way power relates to us. It tips the balance much more in the favor of government and corporations that are often not that indistinguishable from government these days, um, especially the health, the tech giants. Um, so, I mean, like they, 
with a vaccine passport system, and I, this is even more so with digital identity, um, it allows a system of forced compliance to take root. Uh, and that, that is another, I mean, for me, arguably the most disturbing aspect is that we, we lose agency over our own lives. Um, we almost lose our free will because we're being told, look, you, in order for you to go to the gym, you need to have these three um, vaccines inside you. You need to have taken three vaccines. And they, they can um, add new vaccines to the mixer. And with digital identity, they can, they can expand this. So they can say, if you, um, we're going to go into digital identity in a little while, but I presume, but I mean, like, it's yes. the idea of if you've got the wrong political ideas, or if even if you hang around with people with the wrong sorts of political ideals, then maybe you start paying a price in terms of being able to access certain venues, amenities, services. Um, and once you kind of set this precedent, we no longer live in a democratic society, a free democratic society. We live in a society that is fundamentally ruled in, um, in autocratic and I would argue arbitrary ways. And in which what we say and even the smallest things that we do can impact our ability to, for example, even just make a living and put food on the table for our families. And this is something, and it doesn't, I think we, we get confused between using words like this is communism, this is fascism. This is neither of those things. This is something utterly new because the technology is new. The technology is what makes this possible. So it's a whole different kind of dictatorship. And I would say those, those are two of the most, dis, most disconcerting areas. I think there are many other things. I mean, like the fact that we are being forced to take uh, medical products that are not even proven to be safe over the long term. And that we are seeing more and more reasons for concern coming out. Um, that as well is deeply concerning. I mean, for Pfizer and for Moderna to have um, vaccine mandates in place or vaccine passports in place, this is like a perfect moneymaker because they've got like, it's a revolving um, system of money generation. Every four months, every six months, every eight months, you need to take a new vaccine. Yet we have been told by organizations like the European Medicines Agency and even the World Health Organization that taking these vaccines on a regular basis, like taking them every four or five, six months, could be dangerous for our bodies because they will reduce our immune response. They could actually, they could do serious damage to our immune system. Um, so, so those would be three of the major, major concerns uh, that I have about this. Yeah, I mean that's bringing up a, a ton for me. You know, we the I've recommended on this podcast before the 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 real Anthony Fauci by uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. and it, it's a fantastic overlay of of the history of the pandemic. You know, modern history. I think they spend quite a big chunk of it on the suppression of the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. Another big chunk around the topic of ivermectin, and mm -hmm. then uh, you know, really show. Uh, just the scandal that that this last two years has been, but they dive much deeper into the history of Anthony Fauci, and it's yeah. 
it's alarming. I mean, he's been in charge for 40 years, um, but they really dive into the topic of AIDS, which was, I had heard rumblings of, but not in that detail, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I, so I really, really absolutely love that book because of that. Um, yeah, I've not, I've not actually read it yet. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when I, when I do get time, because uh, when, I, when I was writing my book, I didn't have time to read any books. And since writing the book, I've been doing interviews almost like on a daily basis. So it's, it's been tough. But I mean, like once I get a little bit of you know, proper time, because it's a big book, um, I'm going to definitely get my teeth into it. I, I think that there are some vital things that, that Kennedy talks about in this book, just based on interviews I've seen him have. Um, it's, it's, I mean, like the... I mean, whatever people might say, people might say it's necessary to give government more powers in a public health crisis. And, and there, there's a strong argument for that. Um, the problem is when government has been compromised to the extent our governments have been compromised. So whether it's with regulatory capture, the fact that uh, most of our medicines regulators, most of their money comes from the very same pharmaceutical companies whose medicines they are supposed to be regulating. I mean, that is a perverse incentive. It is a conflict of interest of, of a huge proportion. And it's kind of like being, you know, you see it happening in so many different jurisdictions. And uh, so it's, and we, we see it in so many other areas. And, you know, when we talk about the World Economic Forum at some point, then again, that is the mother of all conflicts of interest, in my view. So, yes, it's no, yeah. giving huge amounts of power to government is, is a risky thing. And it's happened, always happens in crises. It happened in the Second World War. Um, you know, governments fighting war take more powers. And you know, there's a good reason for it. You, you could make justifications for that. But like I said, the problem today is that these, um, our governments no longer serve the interests of the people. They, they, they most certainly don't. And there's, yeah, I, I, I'm pissed that we only have an hour because this is, <laughs> there's so many, so many great things to talk about. So one of the things you know, that I really think about, especially the, one of the reasons I love and the reason why I brought up Robert Kennedy's book is that he's a lifelong Democrat from New York and he can't stand, mm-hmm. stand Trump. So like you can't lump him into the category of right wing conservative. <laughs> he's the furthest thing from it. And he's also been truly an environmentalist. He's exposed a lot of the fallacies of, of uh, some of these unelected officials that have been in charge of the environment and where their uh, shortcomings have been in the past. But that's, that's really been his journey is looking out for people, looking out for people wronged by uh, large corporations and industries and the government itself. And so I, I loved that that was where, you know, he, he, he basically broke the mold of someone that you might hear this from. Um, and that, I think that's really important because it might speak to a larger audience, which is necessary. You know, when I think about... That's yeah, it really speaks to me when you talk about this, this really like we have a chance to fight now um, or we we just there is no fight. You know, I think about um, a series of books that's been around for a while that Jordan Peterson would always talk about on Joe Rogan's The Gulag Archipelago. And in mm-hmm. that series of books, one of the things he says is he, he felt almost at, at times when he was locked away in jail that he and the society were, were deserving of it because of how they laid down. Um, yeah 
for for the com- for the for for the onslaught coming in. Everybody thought when they're getting drug out of their apartment in the middle of the night, and neighbors opened the door to see what was going on. Um, they they just they were embarrassed almost, and they would say like, "Oh, it's it's fine, no big deal," and they'd go willfully. They'd never put up a fight. They'd never say a word, and they would just lie to themselves, saying like, "Oh, once once I'm in." Surely this is a mistake. You know, I've done nothing wrong. Once I'm in, they'll realize that and I'll be let out soon. And then five years of torture goes by. And if they live, uh, they can tell the story, but most of them died. And so when you think about it that way, it's like this thing and another point that Jordan presents to us, you know, like Nazi Germany was yesterday. It wasn't 10,000 years ago. It wasn't 10 million years ago. Humans have not evolved since then. Like we have the same hardware and structure of our brain and body as Nazi Germany and as a socialist USSR and Stalin. We, we, don't, we don't have, uh, not enough has changed. It was the blink of an eye ago. So when people say like, oh, I wouldn't do that. I do X, Y, and Z um, differently. Or I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have just followed the rules as an SS um, or, or a, a Nazi. Like they did it. You know, and we have studies that prove people do things like that. So the idea that that's somehow different from you or different from us, or the idea that there's, you know, if only if push comes to shove, will I start to speak out? Like, no, 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 no. The time is now. And if we, if we don't say something now, it's going to be a really big problem because as this pushes forward, there comes a point where unlike our recent past, due to technology and the way things that are different, uh, you know, the technocracy that it's unfolded, we don't have a way to go back. No, it's, uh, that, that is one of the scariest aspects of, I think, the, the, the future that awaits us if we don't take action. And uh, the, the, the fact that if you are in a kind of digital gulag, gulag, uh, uh, archipelago, then, then you're just cut off. You, um, you are deactivated almost. You can no longer maybe get, do your job. You can no longer work. You can no longer pay your rent. You just disappear. You, um, and that forces so many people just to accept, okay, well, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And it's that kind of level of coercion, which is a lot less visible than the coercion you might see in a kind of traditional um, tyranny. It's something that is, it's, it's taking place on our mobile phones. And, and that is, and, and it, if central bank digital currencies come into play, which, which is looking increasingly likely, then, then it is ultimately a digital prison that they will be building. Because we can be cut off from our ability to transact. That would be a possibility with central bank digital currencies. Even though central banks are saying we, we will not get rid of cash, we will keep cash because it is a public good. Um, central banks are prone to say lots of things they don't ever do. They are not well known for keeping their word. And I think that the, yeah, I mean, it's the, I mean, like one of the things that struck me about the last two years is how most people um, get along to go along to get along. They just 
even like I remember when the vaccines were being, you know, talked about in October, November, I, I loads of people I knew were saying, I don't think I'm going to take it. I don't think I'm going to take it. I don't think I'm going to take it. I don't want to take that stuff. And three months later, none of them um, had been able to resist. And that was without pressure. I mean, or at least that was without kind of coercion. That was just simply going along with the flow. I think most people just, they prefer to go along with the flow. And if you've got um, the use of coercion or the use of actual tyranny, as in the case of like, you know, the Stalinist terrors, um, then yeah, people trying to kind of like to put up a resistance, that is, that is a very, very tough act when most people just want to uh, get a, uh, go along to get along. It's just this basic human nature. I mean, there was um, <laughs> there's something my wife and I watched on on YouTube, which I thought was fascinating. I'm not sure how true it was, but it was it was this French farmer, and he was talking about kind of like the lockdowns and everything. And this was in the early months of the pandemic, and and he was explaining he was he was a sheep farmer, and he was explaining that. Um, almost all sheep just do what they're supposed to. But he said, there, there's always the black sheep. And he said, we have this, this idea, most of us have this idea in our mind that the black sheep is actually black. And he said, no, 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 this is not the case. And he said, the black sheep is the sheep that won't follow orders. And he said, like, you have to be very careful with the black sheep because the black sheep can infect other sheep. They can, he can affect other, other sheep the way they think and he can begin to change things. Uh, or she. Um, so he said, what would I do, or what sheep farmers have always done, is one night, when everything's quiet, they will take that black sheep out behind a bush or whatever, and they will slit that sheep's throat. Because that sheep is a danger to, to the flock. Um, at least as, you know, for, or at least a, a threat to the uh, farmer's authority over the flock. Um, so I think that human beings, in many ways, we are similar to this. We, we, we do tend to conform with authority. And many people find truth in authority. So when you are seeing the news every day, and the news every day is telling you a story that may not sound quite right, but it's coming from you know a newsreader with a nice smart suit on, people accept that as truth because it comes from an authority standpoint. And I think it's a lot harder for people to look for real authority and truth. And especially when there's so much misinformation being peddled, I would say by the mainstream media more than anyone else. Um, it's very hard to kind of like to, to avoid the kind of like the, the, the effect that the media can have. And we saw that, we're seeing that with like the, the war in Ukraine, the way they're able to pull our heartstrings by making every single Ukrainian out to be a complete victim and a hero, including the president of Ukraine, and by refusing to even explore the causes of the war or even the potential consequences of the war, which could be exceptionally serious. We have this kind of good guy, bad guy view of the world. 
And it's the same that we had with the vaccines, vaccinated and unvaccinated. It's like, you know, you are good if you are vaccinated, you are bad if you're unvaccinated, you are dangerous. In fact, you are the cause of all the problems if you're unvaccinated. And one thing I say in my book is that when we allow governments to, to, to move us in these kind of emotional ways, to, to encourage us to hate um, the small, a small minority group, whether it's kind of like the unvaccinated, which, for example, in Spain, where I live, is like 15% of the population. The moment we accept that as a possibility, then we give government the power to do that again and again and again. And if there's one thing that we should have learned from the 20th century, the tyranny of the 20th century, is that governments that, that are, are happy to, to promote hatred, they will, they will target that hatred at anyone that is convenient to them. Yeah, these these uh these loops are not closed loops, right? And I think anything No, no, they a, feed off the they feed off themselves. On a societal mm-hmm. level, you know, time is cyclical. I don't know, I'm not for sure if you're familiar with um The Fourth Turning. It's a, a little event. Yeah, bit. fantastic book, 80-year cycles. I'm going to have the authors on my podcast. They're writing a follow-up to that. You know, they wrote this mm-hmm. book in 95 and they said um in 2005, give or take 3 years, we will enter our next 20-year crisis. So Fast forward three years, 2008 happens mm-hmm. and kicks off the 20 year crisis. And, and, you know, understanding that, um, whatever we don't come to terms with will come back to haunt us, right? The sins of our fathers yeah. literally is going to take place on us on a mass scale. And, and if we don't understand what is the head of Hydra that we're trying to defeat, it will show up in various forms. And I think that's, What's being brought to the table right now? You know, it is a new thing, but it's, it is an old thing. It's divide and conquer. It is mm-hmm. uh, us versus them, you know? And, and um, you know, as far as the media is concerned, it, it's funny because, I mean, there, there's, there's really, there, there's kind of, it's not black and white. <laughs> I don't want to say there's two groups of people, but there, there's a group of people that still trust what they see on TV. And there's a group of people that, that don't watch the news that, that go to alternative sources that read things on obscure websites. Um, and maybe not as obscure as some would think it doesn't mean it needs to be an alt-right website or something like that. It just means you have trusted news sources and uh, some of that can even be from social media. You know, we've seen guys like that, um, really, really show up in the world. James O'Keefe, Project Veritas really showed up in the world and exposed quite a bit. Um, not just with CNN, but with the world at large and what comes through the media Nine corporations, you know, we speak about this, TV channels, uh, radio channels, um, paper, and and news articles. They're coming through nine corporations. So if you yeah. think like top-down control isn't something that could possibly happen, or you have a trouble with like the, the, the ideas of a few seeding the masses, there's been books written about this a long time ago, long before Alex Jones came around. You know, uh, Noam Chomsky has been writing about this for many decades, manufactured consent. Um, You've got uh, G. Edward Griffin, who who wrote the what was it the the monster at Jekyll Island, right? Yeah, and um, Jekyll Island, yes, uh-huh. yeah, fantastic, right? And they, there's footage of him in 1969, I think, teaching at Berkeley, and it's black and white footage about, uh, from the American Communist Manifesto. And, and you know, to what you're speaking of, this is something that is brand new. But um, I was recently listening to a Joe Rogan podcast. I forget the guest right now, but. Um, they were talking about it was um, Majid. Uh, 
Yeah, Majid Nawaz. And I'll, I'll, we'll link to that in the show notes because it's one of my favorite podcasts that I've listened to in the last two years. But yeah. you know, when they play Klaus Schwab, they've got, uh, <laughs> they've got Darth Vader's theme music in the background. But he's, he literally, it's, it's out of his mouth, right? And my, my friend JP yeah, Sears yeah. says it. It's like they're playing cards with their hands up. You know, yeah, yeah. they're not hiding anything. And this guy is saying, like, our people are in every branch of government. They're in every branch of corporations. They're, they're, they have been seeded into all forms of power, both political and outside of it. And you can actually track that, right? What they used to call, I think, the future leaders of tomorrow. That name got to change. Um, but you, you list that actually in this book. And I've read it, you know, in other books as well. That, that you see these leaders, you know, you see the Bill Gates, you see um, uh, Marcone, you see the Justin Trudeaus, you see all these people, young and old, from various classes that have graduated from this academy that he started soon after the World Economic Forum in, in 1973. So it's not a, you know, and the guy does look like a James Bond villain, like it, not, not that that should, should uh, make him guilty or not, but I mean, he is literally... Everything he says, he's doing it hands, he's doing it face forward. He's showing you exactly what the playbook is, you know, and he wrote yeah, I mean, COVID-19 and the Great Reset. But let's talk about, I want to, I want to bridge, I want to do talk about Klaus Schwab. I want to talk about Cyber Polygon. And, you know, we, we, we saw this event 201 sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation happened months before the pandemic happened. And, and now Klaus Schwab, you know, they run Cyber Polygon. They talk about a cyber pandemic which would make COVID-19 look like a walk in the park. So when they say something like that's going to happen, like I'm all ears, I don't doubt it. I, and and <laughs> I think for good reason that is going to happen uh, because in crisis is a great time to change things for the worse. And um, I think it's, uh, what's her name? Naomi Wolf, who wrote, you know, on, on the covers of your book has a fantastic documentary, The Shock Doctrine. And it really exposes this. And we'll link to that in the show notes too. I can't believe it's still up on YouTube. It's only an hour and 18 minutes, but it really will show that in history, how this has happened time and again. But talk about, you know, the great reset and, and, you know, what's really, really trying to happen. Break down stakeholder capitalism as well for people that may not be uh, familiar with that. And let's get into Schwab and, and really, you know, the, the end game. Okay, just... Before I do that, just a couple of corrections. Um, Naomi Wolf um, was was not the writer of the Shock Doctrine. She was uh, that was Naomi Klein. So Naomi, Naomi Wolf, Klein. Okay, okay. There we go. Naomi Wolf uh, wrote The End of America, um, which is a book I think that came out oof, in two thousand five or something. Like that. So she was warning about how America could become a kind of like a tyrannical regime way back in 2005 based on kind of like the way government had taken controls through things like the Patriot Act and other things like that. So, I mean, The End of America is a fascinating book. Um, it's, it should be read alongside probably The Shot Doctrine, the two books that I think <laughs> um, give us a very, very important warning about where we could be headed. Um, I think that the other thing I wanted to correct is, yeah, it's Global Leaders for Tomorrow, if I'm there not mistaken. There we go. Global Leaders for Tomorrow. So, so yes, um, <laughs> where are we heading? I mean, I think that the cyber polygon, it's, uh, it's a curious thing. I mean, like, they've done two simulations now, um, the World Economic Forum 
And it's fascinating to see who they're able to bring together for these simulations. I mean, like these are top law enforcement agencies. These are intelligence agencies. These are some of the largest corporations, banks. Um, so, I mean, like this is something that should be getting probably more attention. But again, like you said, it's kind of like they're doing this, they're doing this out in the open, but they know they're not going to get the attention that might actually raise alarms among the general populace. So it is, it is a curious thing. I mean, I, I don't know whether or not event 201 was actually uh, related to what ended up happening. There's no actual proof of that. It's just immensely coincidental that um, two or three months before the pandemic uh, began officially, um, we had this simulation, which was a coronavirus, but I think began in a, I think it was in pigs. But, but yes, it's, um, I mean, one thing that um, John F., John, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, mentioned in one interview I saw, he said, I mean, like, What's interesting about the event 201 um, event is that when it came to actually responding to this simulated pandemic, none of it was talking about actually treating the the pandemic, interestingly enough. Um, It was about controlling the narrative. Um, It was about... um, stopping people from reacting against what the government was doing. It's about taking control. Um, so, I mean, like, there was no mention of kind of like using, for example, vitamin D or zinc or any of these other things, which is exactly what we've experienced with this pandemic. So the one thing that just about every advanced economy on the planet has in common is the fact that they have completely refused to encourage people to take simple supplements that will help you help to reduce your risk of, of developing serious symptoms. It's, um, it's a staggering thing. Whereas if you look at countries that are much poorer, that have less access to the vaccines, that are, you know, have fewer choices available to them, they are, have been using medicine kits like Mexico, like India, um, all over the world, even countries I think as poor as um, I think it was Nicaragua or El Salvador, which are which are semi-failed states, they were still able to do something that advanced economies couldn't do. So, so I mean, I think the event 201, at the very least, if you look at it, it does show a lot of parallels with the way our our, our authorities um, responded to this pandemic. Um, so. With the cyber polygon, um, I mean, it is deeply concerning that they are talking about the financial system. They are talking about a cyber attack against the financial system because in, in my view, the financial system, the global financial system is, is in an extremely vulnerable situation. It's, it's, it's been, um, extremely weak ever since the global financial crisis in 2008. And even before the, even before the pandemic began, you had enormous bailouts, kind of like undercover bailouts of Wall Street banks, uh, in 2000, I think it was in late 2019, 
huge like um, repo payments that were that were going to these banks. So I mean, like, there's this is it's an open it's an open secret that the financial system is on its last legs, and this, this is the reason why you've been seeing organizations like the IMF talking about a monetary, a global monetary reset. So, I mean, the Great Reset was kind of like, it was um, um, it was preceded by this, this monetary reset, the global monetary reset. We had some important organizations, some important individuals using this kind of language going back four or five years. Um, so, so when I see an organization like the World Economic Forum talking about simulating these kinds of, um, what should we say, cyber attacks against the financial system or against global supply chains, which is another one they did, um, then it certainly pricked up my ears. Um, one thing that probably people, maybe readers don't know, is that there was another, um, another simulation in Israel in December last year, which that definitely went under the radar. I only, I only learned of this two days ago. And the, um, the IMF was involved. So the most important global financial institution was involved. Ten central banks were involved. Um, and this was all about, you know, simulating a cyber attack hit against a bank and this setting off kind of ripple effects across the financial global financial system. Now, curiously, one of the scenarios in this simulation is that um, fake news would trigger a a run on the banks. Okay, which is that was back in December. Now, at the a few weeks ago, um, the Reuters published an article. In fact, it wasn't a few weeks ago, it was, it was, it was eight days ago. Um, and the title of the article is Beware of Wartime Fake News Triggering a Run, EU Banks Told. So, I mean, like, this is exactly that scenario is now kind of playing out. They are warning about the risk of fake news prompting, triggering a run on the banks in the European Union. Um, so I mean, like this is this is this is I mean, like it's purely speculation to suggest that that is something that could happen. That simulation that took place months ago um, will end up taking place and will end up causing all sorts of chaos. But it does concern me, given that we have been told that we are going to have a monetary reset, we are going to have a global reset, um, and the, or in the words of the World Economic Forum, a great reset in which just about everything is transformed. It is a revolutionary thing. It's really important that people realize we are talking about something that is revolutionary and not really in a positive way, at least for most of humanity, I would argue. Um, but if you have a financial system that has been on its last legs for the last 15 years or so, and it's been getting gradually worse. Um, and you have the possibility of, let's say, uh, a cyber attack taking down a bank or a number of banks, which would cause chaos within the financial system. And they're talking about kind of like an internet, turning off the internet for a number of days. 
I mean, that's not just the World Economic Forum, but also in this simulation in Israel. And if you want, I can send you the links to this so that you can put them in the show notes. I would love that. Uh, but, but it's the beauty of this. I mean, if, if we were just to suspend, um, uh, what do you call it? Spend our imagination, just think that this is possible. The beauty of it is that the, the organizations, uh, the companies and the people who have, to a certain degree, who, who caused the crisis of 2008, who have benefited from the last 15 years of unprecedented money creation and bailout after bailout after bailout, um, to the detriment of the vast uh, majority of, popu- of the populations on planet Earth, those people will be able to walk away from this. They'll be able to dust off their labels. They will not be remotely affected. We will have another villain. So the villain would be Putin, or the villain would be hackers connected to Iran, um, or hackers related to some other organization. And the other beautiful thing about this, imagine if you, if, if we did have something like this come to pass, um, the problem would be fake news. Fake news will have caused a global crash, which means that they have all the justification they would ever need to crack down on misinformation. So it's like killing two birds with one stone. You kill you would kill effectively the, the, the financial system or you would put it in a state, in a coma. And at the same time, you would provide the perfect um, alibi for the ultimate crackdown on um, sharing information that is not, that does not coincide with official narrative. I mean, like, I am hoping this doesn't happen. I'm hoping this is beyond, this is just, they're, 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 just, they're just doing these exercises because they have our, um, our best interest um, at heart. That is what I'm hoping. Um, and I think that this is, I have to insist with your listeners, this is purely speculative. There is no proof. But what we do have is we have a number of occasions where very, very powerful organizations who want to transform, transform the global economy, to transform the financial system, um, are doing simulation exercises um, involving cyber attacks uh, against the financial system. And we have seen, like I, I have documented in the book and I've documented in other articles, that we have seen a massive increase in IT outages in banks around the world over the last 18 months. And like that's in Australia, it's in New Zealand, it's in the UK, it's in um, Latin America, Mexico, Venezuela, Ecuador. It's in even somewhere like Singapore, one of the most digitally um, advanced banks had a 48-hour outage last year. So, I mean, like this is happening at the same time. So, so I don't know what's going on here. But it does concern me because I think the only way they can actually, they can get this transition between the system we have today and the kind of 
central bank digital currency system they want to bring in is through a crisis. That is my feeling. Yeah, and, and even though I got the names wrong, <laughs> Naomi Klein points that out perfectly in the shock doctrine. Um, we'll Crises are the perfect, perfect uh, vectors for change. Well, it's um, certainly not a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> an easy to digest topic. Um, how how no. do you propose we protect ourselves? Um, obviously, you know, education being first and foremost, understand what's happening, spread word. Um, what are some of the ways that we cushion the blow against um, complete financial reformation? Um, cash, <laughs> number one. Use cash, embrace cash, get back to the old habits, um, encouraging, uh, encourage other people to use cash. Um, I think that this is fundamentally um, crucial. Uh, the cash is an in- incredible public good that has been under attack for, for the last 10 years, if not longer. And unfortunately... Um, its use is kind of like on a generational um, tendency. So you have people over the age of 40 or 50 are more likely to use cash. People under the age of 40 are less likely to use cash. Certainly people under the age of 30 um, may never use cash. Um, but it's it's one of the last bastions we have. We still, it, it offers us the possibility of being able to do things um, in a private, anonymous way. And that anonymity, that privacy, we only value it, we will only value it when it's gone, I fear. Um, so, so, and I think that trying to encourage people, so Catherine Austin Fitz, somebody who you mentioned earlier, she's been encouraging people to do Cash Fridays. So I mean, not, not telling everybody to use cash for everything, but like, you know, just like we maybe, you know, Christians eat fish on a Friday, we should um, just try to use cash for all our transactions on a Friday. That's a pretty good idea. It's a, it's a way of starting the ball rolling. I think that um, education, like you say, is fundamental. So many people are switched off about what is happening in these areas. And that is by design, obviously. But we have, you know, we are living in the information age. So information is out there. It's about trying to get it to as many people as possible. And that might mean not just sharing it on Twitter, on Facebook, but having uncomfortable conversations with people we love who we know disagree with us. Maybe even on the question like whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, but we have much bigger fish to fry. This is a much bigger risk to us, a much bigger threat to us, I believe, than the pandemic itself. So, so trying to sit down, trying to mend relationships, relations, relations we've had, broken relations, um, trying to get people to see and just, just saying, look, read this book, <laughs> for example, or read this article, check it out, because it is out there in plain sight. We're not talking about a conspiracy. This isn't, I mean, like, this is not... Um, these are not decisions being made in smoky rooms. These are decisions being made out in the wide open. Um, I would argue that if you really want to get people switched on, start off by telling them about the Global Pandemic Treaty. Because that is going to affect every last one of us on planet Earth 
and it is not being reported by our media, but everybody should know about it. And it's a good starting point because it's not controversial. It's there, it's reported in Reuters, it's reported in Politico. So, I mean, uh, these are as mainstream as, you know, media you, as you can find. Um, so I would say that is, that is fundamental. Try to avoid falling into the divide and rule. Um, that, you know, the divide and rule program that they, they, they're trying to put us through because we, it does not benefit us in any shape or form. We have too much in common. This is not just about whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. It's not whether you're right or left. This, this goes far beyond that. And this is not a communist or a fascist thing. This is something that is about, in my view, and I try to lay that, this out as much in my book as possible. Um, this is about corporations taking over um, the role of government and kind of putting to bed democracy for good. And I think that if people realize that the, the interests of the World Economic Forum do not coincide with our interests, they do not dovetail with the interests of most people, their partners, if you go to the World Economic Forum website, you can look at the list of partners. They've got it, it's alphabetically set up. So you can go from A to Z and you can see um, who the organizations are that, that, that the World Economic Forum rep really represent. And we are talking about the largest corporations, the largest banks, the largest hedge funds, private equity funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds on planet Earth. This is where the money resides. And they have been vacuuming up uh, money over the last 10 to 15 years. They have been like, and we saw the biggest wealth transfer in history in the wake of the pandemic, when central banks essentially created the biggest uh, bailout of the banking system and the financial system in history. And they were the beneficiaries and the rest of us were not. We, we are paying the price and we are paying the price in terms of inflation. We are paying the price in terms of the supply chain crisis that is happening. Um, and we are paying the price when, when the central banks begin increasing interest rates. We will pay the price of that as well. So it is, it is um, I think, trying to get people to realize that there is an us versus them moment. And the them is very clear. It's very clear who they are. And it's, it's a moment to kind of like, like, like I said, it is literally now or never. So I think that those are the fun, two fundamental things. People, people talk about cryptocurrencies, whether or not they will be a safe haven from whatever happens, whatever comes. I'm not so sure. It's, um, I've got a feeling that the central banks once they've got their digital currencies set up, they're not going to be very tolerant of competitors. Um, so I think it's more important to try to safeguard cash at least to get this. If we can get digital identity, central bank digital currencies and vaccine passports talked about over the dinner table um, in our local um, councils, in our state um, congresses, whatever. I mean, like if we can get that being talked about, at least we may have an effect on whatever policies are taken in the future. At the moment, there's a negotiating table. <laughs> Everyone's around it apart from 
the general public. It's our future that's being decided and we don't have a seat at the table. So it's kind of up to us to begin to make sure that that, that changes. Well, this has been just uh, an amazing and uh, definitely always a hard topic to, to get into the nitty gritty of, but I, I absolutely love the work that you're doing. I appreciate every ounce of sweat and um, time that you've invested into this topic. You stated it beautifully. It is a short read for people. We'll link to that in the show notes. It's an excellent book. It's also available on Audible. Um, you didn't narrate it, but the narrator does a fantastic job. Sometimes I can't stand the narrators if they're not the out there. Uh, it, it, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he did great. Um, I really appreciate having you on. I want to connect you with my friends, Paul Check, Nathan Riley, and, and some others, if you're cool with that, to, to jump on their podcast, because this is a, it's the conversation. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that. Where can people find you online? Um, my blog is nickcorbishley.com. And my Twitter handle is Nick Corbishley. Beautiful, brother. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing. And um, hopefully the next time we chat, it's uh, a little bit brighter. <laughs> ah, it'd be nice if it was in person as well. Maybe, maybe one day I'll be able to come to the US. Absolutely, brother. I would love that. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Thanks for having again. me, pal. All Take right. care.